0: Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Wednesday?
1: Sure. All right. And you were watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Ryan Broderick. A former Netflix creative director just raised $1.6 million for a startup that sells straight edge water in tall boy cans. And their tagline is, nothing's better than water at murdering your thirst. Literally, dehydration is better at murdering your thirst. Anyway, here's a
0: reaction to this news from Jessica Valenti. Imagine masculinity so fragile, you need to buy
1: tough water. You gotta get that. You gotta. Water for men. Yeah, you gotta get hydrated in that uh, tough way. You gotta put ooh. skulls on it. Oh. Uh, yeah, you, This is water. Yeah, uh. feel, chug, chug it, chug it, chug it, chug it. Yeah, you feel. Oh, yeah, bro. Suck it, bro. Yeah, bro. You feel it. Bro. Yeah, bro. Loving it. Loving it. Here's the thing, man. It's crazy. Literally, On the can, obviously, you can see all these skulls. There's, like, literally, like, a mission statement that's, like, water shouldn't just be for yoga moms. It's called liquid death. Water is literally liquid life. Mm -hmm. Like, it is such a mixed-up idea. And the fact that they are getting 1.6 million dollars oh in funding for it. Yeah. I just, I want to be clear, like, capitalism, we watch it all the time. It always is kind of co-opting mm-hmm. subcultures. It is co-opting things. This creative director comes back from, like, a kind of a metal background. He's like, this is right. for straight-edge straight kids. Edge. This is for kids that want to go to the shows and don't want to drink, which is great. But you know no, what, it's I'm pretty nice. sure... Sprite is great. Like, cool. Yeah, supply free water at those shows. I'm pretty sure most places do. Also, one of the people backing this financially is Biz Stone, one of the co-founders of Twitter. So there's just like a lot going on here. Go figure. I mean, my thing is, it, it, this is uh, twofold. Mm. One, this is, uh, uh, well, actually
0: threefold. One is just obnoxious, like just on base. It's just obnoxious and annoying. It feels like we're being trolled by capitalism and reality. Two, it's like, how are you going to gender natural resources. <laughs> mm, 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 I look forward mm. to, you know, straight acting oxygen. Mm. So, like what? It's just so dumb. And then three, um, you know, that it's profitable. So that so that obnoxious misogyny mm. is profitable feels like, you know, just the way to some. I side. feel like you just described capitalism, my friend. I think you really <laughs> just you nailed oh. it. So there is. Oh. And you, Happy Pride Month. Oh, my God. Like, they're going to give it out at pride parades, aren't
1: they? It's really hot. Oh, oh my wow. God. I know. it, it will be like, murder it, girl. There, you it, murdered that thirst, honey. Listen, I'm not about <laughs> putting skulls on things, but this just feels ridiculous. And I saw it on the timeline. A lot of people dunking on it yesterday. But there is this other part of it, too, right? And to that point, I want to get this tweet from you, Saeed. People in Flint, Michigan, look directly at. Camera, right? You don't need Isaac and Saeed Jones to tell you that there are
0: so we're married now. That there are so many different ways we could use one point six million dollars, mm-hmm. right? And we also know we hear here again and again that women, black women in particular, with startups always are ignored by angel mm-hmm. investors and don't get this. So just like mm-hmm. one point six million for water, just it, it feels like a slap in the face to yeah. them but also obviously to communities that actually do need water.
1: Because that's the thing. If you want to start a movement, if you want to be punk, if you want to get out there, like help build your community up. Like if this, I won't lie, if this was like a start, like one kid with $5 started trying to get fresh water to people or something, that'd be more interesting. But this is somebody that obviously has wealthy, wealthy friends starting a crazy company and getting a crazy amount of money for it. I hate you all.
0: Anyway, let's take it to the timeline. What other products would you like to see get Toughened up. Uh, I'd like a, I don't know, a tougher constitution. Mm. Let's let's toughen up democracy. We want some skulls on let's let's, let's, let's put some spikes on checks and balances, mm. bro. All mm. right, let us know using the hashtag masculinity so fragile. It My sure God. is. Uh. Well,
1: listen, here's a tweet that we saw yesterday from the Texas Tribune. New cell phone footage from the now infamous traffic stop of Sandra Bland shows her perspective when a Texas state trooper points a taser at her and yells... I will light you up. Mm. Chief investigative reporter for Investigative Network, Brian Collister,
0: who surfaced this crucial video footage, joins us now. Good morning, Brian. Morning, guys. All right. So um, how did you feel, frankly, when you first saw this
2: video yourself? I was stunned. Uh, I think everyone who's seen it has been stunned. It's uh, we had only seen the dash cam video, which was from a distance. It was a little grainy and shadowy. And, uh, you know, this in- interaction between them was so intense. You know, he literally sticks the taser in her face and says, I'm going to light you up. So when I saw this video, it was as though you were seeing that confrontation in that very moment through Sandra Bland's eyes.
1: Yeah. And what else did we see? Because the video is 30 sec- 38 seconds long. There's, of course, that moment. But what else could you garner from it?
2: Well, what you see is the trooper and, and his face and his movements and his reactions And the family says, the attorney for the family says, this completely blows out of the water his excuse, which he's had from day one, his defense, which was, I was in fear for my safety. He literally said, "Uh, I didn't know if she had a weapon in her hand. I didn't know what she was going to do. I was in fear for my life, essentially. And the video, according to the family, and a lot of people who've seen it goes, that guy was not in fear for his life. He was Given her the what for, and she had had enough, and it exploded into this confrontation. And she's holding a phone in his face. He knows what's in her hand. So it very much uh, has upset a lot of people who say he wasn't in fear for his safety. You can tell that he knew what was in her hand. He
0: knew exactly what he was doing. Um, when I found out about the story yesterday, of course, my heart broke into a million pieces again. Um, and then I was like, OK, let's think pragmatically. Where is the state trooper? And what do we know also about the people who—because remember, she was in her cell, So it's not just him. Do we know about the other people who were involved in this case? Like, are they still charged with policing a community? So, the way we were able
2: to get this video was because the civil federal lawsuit the family had filed against the trooper and the state uh, was settled, and then, of course, the criminal charges against the trooper, there was a plea deal, and uh, he essentially agreed not to be a peace officer anymore, and he's vanished, can't find the guy, he is completely underground, I've tried to look for him. Um, They basically have wiped him clean and who knows where the guy is at this point. Um, But the key thing to remember is that civil federal lawsuit. Not only had the attorney and the family not seen this video when I discovered it, I just thought it was a, a, a unique perspective on what happened. So I went to them for comment and they said, where in the world did you get this video? I said, you mean you didn't get it in the discovery where the lawyers give evidence back and forth in a case? They said, no. So the family says that someone basically obstructed justice in this federal case and did not give them this evidence, the state says, well, of course we did. So right now we're trying to figure out what happens next. There's going to be a hearing at the state capitol
1: and hopefully we'll get some answers then. How hopeful are you that the case might be reopened in light of all of this new information? Well, I'll tell you, I've spoken to
2: the Bland family and this does, every time something new happens in her case or it gets resurrected in some way and this video is another example it it reopens the wound for them so they're they're struggling they're having a difficult time they've made it very clear to me and to others they do not they are not asking for the civil case to be reopened they do very much want to see that trooper uh in the words of Sandra's sister Shantae Needham he should go to jail
0: um, as an investigative reporter who spends time, you know, focusing on criminal justice, I just wonder if you could open the aperture for a second. Can you explain the impact, um, stories like this, um, when we find out, you know, it seems that states or, or police departments uh, deceive their own communities, the impact that has on the work that police try to do on, uh, on a daily basis?
2: You know what? I, it, it's, it's easy to, to uh, pile on uh, the police when things like this happen. I speak to a lot of law enforcement officers who do a great job, who are wonderful, who uh, follow all the rules. And when something like this happens, it really uh, damages them. Yes, you're going to have bad apples. You have bad apples in every industry. Um, and in this case, they have a badge and a gun and, and they can take lives. They can arrest you and take away your liberty and, and put you in a, in a cell. So. You know, it's very sensitive what they do. And when something like this happens and the public sees it, it sows that distrust. And so the police departments have to do more to build trust. Um, and I don't, you know, to be honest with you, my personal perspective, that's a long road to do that, just based on everything that's been happening in this country in terms of instances of, of police abuse uh, of, of people they pull over, people they arrest under false terms, false evidence. Um, it's, a, it's a big problem for law enforcement
1: because they've lost our trust. And how it's going to be rebuilt, uh, that's a big question. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your reporting, of course, Brian. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, guys. Love the show. Thank you. All right, before we move on, I wanted to highlight
0: this tweet from Clint Smith. I saw mm. it yesterday. Uh, the woman who said Emmett Till came onto her lied about what he said. The officer who killed Oscar Grant uh, lied about what he did. The police withheld video of Sandra Bland. That tells a different story. There is a long history of black people being killed based on someone else's lie. Literally just last week, we had poet Jericho Brown on the show, standing where Isaac is right here, and Jericho read his poem, bullet points, I'll find it and tweet it out again this morning, that is literally about someone saying, if you find my body near a police officer, look into it. I I didn't kill myself. It did not kill myself. And Mm -hmm. so it's just to see again and again how history isn't just repeating itself, but almost like mocking us Mm -hmm. in real time. It's, It's
1: heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's a very tough story. Our next story comes from Daily Beast reporter Scott Bixby. He tweeted... Despite a federal judge's ruling, the State Department is continuing a years-long campaign to strip a gay couple's son of birthright citizenship. Jackie Kucinich added that the State Department is requiring that couple to undergo
0: DNA testing for one of their twin boys to establish that the child is the biological son of a U.S. citizen. One! I... Yeah, I know. All right. Daily Beast reporter Scott Bisbee joins us now to talk about this. Clearly, we are two through. Scott, good morning. Morning, guys. All right. So, obviously, thank you for reporting on this story. It's uh, incredibly important. Um, Tell us about the family at the heart of this case.
3: So, this case, which has been going on since uh, early last year, centers around, uh, you know, two male parents, uh, Andrew and Elad DeVosh Banks. They... Uh, met when Andrew, who is an American citizen raised in California, was uh, studying abroad in Israel, and he met Elad, who's an Israeli citizen. They moved to Canada get together, got married in 2010, and then in September of 2016, they had two twin boys uh, via a surrogate, uh, their sons, Aiden and Ethan. Um, after A few months after the boys were born in September 2016, they decided to move back to Andrew's native uh, California, and in preparation for doing so, they were getting their kids a passport. And at the U.S. consulate in Toronto, where they were living at the time, originally there was no problem. Uh, There's a presumption when children are born to a married couple abroad and one half of that couple is an American citizen, then both of those kids or any number of those kids are granted American citizenship, birthright citizenship via the father. But after a sort of back and forth with the uh, U.S. consulate, it was determined by the State Department that they needed to undergo DNA testing for both of the boys to see which one was biologically related to the American citizen father. Um, only one of the boys, uh, Aiden, was, and Ethan was determined to not have birthright citizenship, even though his father legally uh, is an American citizen.
1: Okay, I, this is my main question here, because I'm, really, I'm almost excited to hear the answer.
3: <laughs> what is the State Department's argument here? Uh, it's kind of making it up as they go, because as American uh, immigration law is written and as the uh, State Department's understanding of what gay marriage abroad and gay marriage in the United States means uh, for immigration law, the children children of a married couple, not biological, just children, are entitled to birthright citizenship if they are the product of a binational marriage, which is to say marriage of an American citizen and a non- non-American citizen. Um, however, after this case came about, the State Department decided that they were going to change the definition of child in these cases. And they they added the word biological. Uh, this is not something that was passed by Congress. This is not something that underwent judicial review. It was just a new determination by the State Department uh, under this administration to make it a slightly higher hurdle for allowing the biological children or the non-biological children of American citizens to come and live in the United States legally. It's part of this, you know, obviously part of a, a very broad tapestry of efforts by this administration to make it harder uh, for people to live and reside in the United States.
0: Happy Pride Month to you. Um, It's so frustrating. I I, I guess this is obviously a double standard, right? Like, as you noted, like if this was a heterosexual couple, you and I and Isaac would not even be talking about the story right now as we understand it. So what comes next? Obviously, I'm sure this family is going to continue to fight for their child's uh, right to citizenship.
3: Yes, as they have been for years. Uh, there, the federal district judge in California ruled in February that the State Department was uh, straining American immigration law to accommodate this new understanding of what like, a child is versus a biological child. And the State Department at the time said that they were looking at their options. On Monday, they filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, basically pressing their case that, just, that if there is not a biological relationship to an American citizen, then that kid is not entitled to be an American citizen. But there is precedent in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals multiple cases where it was determined that if you are the product of binational marriage, uh, whether or not you are biologically related to an American citizen, it doesn't matter. You are still entitled under the definition of the law passed by Congress uh, to American birthright citizenship. So it's unclear how far they're willing to press this. If that's the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals precedent, then they might be willing to push this to the Supreme Court wow so this might be ongoing well scott thank you so
1: much for joining us this morning
3: thanks for having me
0: i am overwhelmed i just i can't i keep thinking of uh gay republicans in particular during the 2016 Mm -hmm. election who really seized upon trump and him waving, holding that rainbow rainbow flag flag. yeah past comments and just like he's a champion and Where are you now? I will never forgive you. Anyway, we've got another great show for y'all today. Uh, Model Halima Aiden is here. Excited to talk to her. She's the first uh, model to be on the cover of the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated in a uh, burkini and hijab, so really cool um, in it. And up next, it is Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. We need Fire Tweets because (laughs) I just... You're ready to set things on fire. I mean... (laughs) Another day, another dollar. We're
1: going to need some of that liquid death to put it all out. Just <laughs> get some, some right. Kyle water up in here. Water for bros. Oh, get
0: out of here. All right. <laughs>
1: Kyle. Kyle Kyle, Bros are called Kyle. It's a fact. Is I don't make the rules. Yeah, man. Mostly we're called Todd. Man, Kyle's the kind of guy who's got that monster truck hat on. He's drinking monster energy drink. Loves Four loco. Yeah, man.
0: All right, not going to argue. All right, our first pirate tweet comes from Jim. (laughs) Uh, Sorry that I'm making fun of your name as I'm about to read your tweet, Jim. You did nothing. It's not your fault. Okay, here's what you tweeted. Reasons Pikachu should be able to drink beer. One. It would be dope <laughs> Two, what are you, Pikachu's mom <laughs> yes. Is this an ongoing
1: debate? No, I don't think it's an ongoing b- debate. Here's what's okay. going on. Detective Pikachu. Yeah, I'm excited. In, I'm excited too. Yep. In that movie, I think he has a caffeine addiction. So I think there's a oh, lot of talk. he was drinking a lot of coffee. He's like drinking all the coffee. Uh-huh. And I think some people were like, they should have just gone the whole, like you kind of know what it's referencing anyways. Yeah, like a drunk detective. Just there, go true. all the all way right. in on it. <laughs> drunk Pikachu would be pretty cute. I'm just saying he's already it got those apple cheeks but it, it was like oh, that's all funny. right it might happen <laughs> all right <It> could happen. <laughs> sorry <laughs> our producer Rebecca Bisdale tweeted farting in public with headphones in is such a risky move <laughs> and i just got to say if you don't follow bisdale you should because it's real follow it, her on twitter but clearly don't walk behind her <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say it's 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 insights like this. She's really dropping <laughs> knowledge every day. Oh well. Uh, you were talking about if iPods would just turn. Yeah, if AirPods, like if you fart so loud, the AirPod goes pause. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think you got million dollar. If that, if the water can get funded, you could too, my oh friend. My gosh, oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, our next tweet comes from Jay Sachi.
0: <laughs> You tweeted, friend. Hey, I'm outside. Me. All right, I'm coming out now. Also me. (laughs) Yep. 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 Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Are you Are you one of those people that's like, Oh yeah? I'm like two blocks away. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) You need to to, like. I'm ten minutes out. I'm five minutes out. I'm on your block, Saeed. I'm at your door. Where? Are you? And then you'll be 10 minutes late. I'm like, still conditioning my hair.
1: All right. Oh, yeah, iconic you tweeted, Wife, I'm going into labor. Husband, win. Wife, now. Husband, sets plate of nachos down. Jesus Christ, Karen, I just made these. We were, man. Husbands, get your shit together. True. Be more supportive. That's Put true. the nachos down. Prince Harry, we're looking at you. He was, he it seems like he's doing well so far. <laughs> seems like he's doing well so
0: far. But you know, it's very touch and go these days. Anyway, ready for Tweet of the Dance. It comes from Alex. Alex, you tweeted, one of my biggest faults is that when I ask someone their name, I forget to listen to what their name is. Uh, it's th- me.
1: Yeah. I found my
0: burner account. <laughs>
1: Trapo. I think you gotta like re-ask a few times. This is the thing. Mm. I will always forget it. Like I've I've read up on like Tips and tricks, and try to trick your friend into doing it. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a, that's a good move. See,
0: I'm from the south. Well, I, it's fine. I'll just say, I just, you know, that's I often say, like, hey pumpkin, hey sweetie, hey honey, because what happens is, particularly in New York, people are so kind of delighted and thrown that I've, you know, said like called them honey pie or whatever that they don't realize that site has never said my name.
1: I'm just waiting for one of your pumpkins to just be like, what's my name? <laughs> <laughs> All right, coming up, Saeed, we'll be talking with BuzzFeed News Director Sara Yasin <laughs> and with Supermodel Halima Aiden. I'm so excited for that conversation. But up next, we are going live from the district. I just caught the squash. That Your was very fun. Name is funny. Butternut. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nocera. Good morning, Kate.
4: Good morning. Hey,
0: sis. Uh, here's a tweet from New York Times reporter Suzanne Craig. Uh, you might know her name now if you've been looking at Twitter, friends. Uh, the New York Times has obtained 10 years of previously unrevealed figures from Donald Trump's federal income tax returns from 1985 to 1994. Trump ran up $1.2 that's with a B, billion dollars in core business losses in the decade we examined.
1: Woo, Suzanne continued, Donald Trump paid no income taxes in eight of the 10 years we examined. His losses were so big that in 1991, they accounted for fully 1% of all business losses declared that year by individual American taxpayers. We keep telling them we're the 99%. That's a lot.
4: That's a lot.
1: Okay. So Kate, let's start at the beginning. These are not the actual tax returns, right? So what did the New York times obtain?
4: They, uh, they obtained essentially summaries from the IRS via quote unquote, a a person who was legally involved who, who would, who would know, right. Um, But they're not the actual tax returns, but something that said, you know, the exact numbers of Donald Trump's losses and the tax money that he did not pay. Okay.
0: wow. Okay. so um, The New York Times and I believe it was also Suzanne Craig who reported on uh, Trump's taxes back in October of last year. That was a huge story as well. Yeah. How is the story different? What are we learning now?
4: Yeah, now we're basically learning that uh, Donald Trump, the brand of Donald Trump, that all, you know, that it, it confirms that his image, his deals, that he was actually not making so much money, not becoming this, you know, rich, successful billionaire, but in fact, making a lot of really crappy deals that lost him tons and tons of money. I mean, we knew, right, that he had started a casino that went bankrupt. I mean, there are certain things that 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 everyone kind of knew. But this is numbers, facts, figures, putting you know, putting the, the putting the facts to that uh, sort of air that he was presenting, which just wow, shock, turned out not to be true. Mm. Turned out turned out to
1: be inaccurate. What a surprise!
4: Yeah. Um. Listen, there's a lot of talk about. Yeah, that- my favorite part. Go, go. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Kate. No, I was saying my favorite part was that like the the year that he lost the most money was the year that he had written the art of the deal. I just thought that (laughs) was like a lovely fact. That is,
1: what a chef kid. Yeah. Oh man, the art of losing so much money. Listen, tax returns, it's been a big thing (laughs) around Trump since the election, really. There's a fight now in the House. Does any of this play into that?
4: Um, it, it just sort of plays into the fact that Donald Trump clearly doesn't tell the truth about his money and where his money comes from. I think that's what that confirms. I mean, this is not connected to Congress or the tax returns Congress is trying to get. They're trying to get much more recent ones around business deals involving uh, the Trump Tower in Moscow, right? Like that is something that they would be very interested in. But it does confirm that Trump and the Trump organization doesn't always tell the truth about you know, their finances. And so that's obviously interesting to members of Congress who think it's just sort of further proof that they really need to see the documents to get to the bottom of things.
0: All right. Well, um, I, before we... <laughs> this is just great. It's just great, Kate. Um, I did want to ask you one last question. Yeah. We just saw some breaking news um, from the Washington Post. Uh, the White House has asserted mm-hmm executive privilege over the Mueller report. Uh, so briefly, obviously, this right. has happened. But uh, what's going on there? What's this mean?
4: Yeah. So uh, right now, the House Judiciary Committee is voting to hold Attorney General Bill Barr in contempt of Congress for not turning over the full unredacted Mueller report to Congress. Uh, it, it is the next step in the escalation of this fight. And so you know, we were kind of expecting the White House to exert executive privilege maybe a little bit earlier, but they they wanted to wait to see what the House did. But this is just sort of the next moment uh, in this fight, and things are going to get weird and legal and crazy. And I don't know what's going to happen. Going just to to be honest weird with you guys. And legal and we're sort of heading into like this unprecedented moment, right? Where where it, it's it's not unprecedented yet, but. We're getting there. Stay tuned. Oh,
1: okay. Kate, I think well, you just renamed the se- the segment yeah. like Weird, like Legal, and Crazy yeah. going live from the district. <laughs> Good to
4: know we have something to
0: look forward to. Uh, Kate, thanks for joining us this morning.
4: Always. <laughs> yep. Thank you.
0: Oh, man. It's not crazy yet. All right. Cool. That is something I learned this morning on AMD. Well, up next, sorry, you've seen and I talk with model Halima Aiden. We are so excited to talk to her. <laughs> Hello, my queens. I'm here with Sara Yassin, BuzzFeed News' Global Director of News Curation, and am to dms Woman Crush Wednesday, who has just made history as the first model to pose in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue wearing a burkini and hijab, Halim Adin. Hello! 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 hello. How are you? Good! Fabulous! Okay! I love it, I love it. <laughs>
5: um. Hello. Hello. Um, so, Gabrielle Union tweeted, Today's Women Crush Wednesday is Halima Aden, who just made history as the first model to wear hijab and burkini in Sports Illustrated. She was born in the Kakuma Ref- refugee camp in Kenya, mm-hmm. and since moving to the States, she's been a leader for women showing that beauty can come in many forms. So the reception from celebrities and yeah. Twitter has been really incredible. What's been the reaction from your community?
6: My community is head over the moon, head over the heels, head over everything, because it's Sports Illustrated, one of the most iconic fashion magazines. And it's just for a girl to wear a hijab and bikini and still be comfortable, confident, Mm -hmm. standing right alongside women who feel beautiful wearing a bikini. It just sends the right message and girls are celebrating like there's no tomorrow. I
5: love it. Well, someone else who tweeted about you.
6: Oh, ah, <laughs> yes, we made these Twitter, yes.
5: That's no, exactly what we do here. Um, was Representative Ilhan Omar, and she said, as my fellow Minnesotan and Somali refugee, I'm so proud of you for working to get here and to propel the conversation forward. What do you think the next big steps are for diversity in fashion?
6: I think, again, just doing the unexpected. Mm-hmm. Here's a great example. As I is shattering perceptions, Mm -hmm. you know, having models of all different ages, all different backgrounds. You know, today they launched three beautiful women on their cover, including Tyra, who is Mm -hmm. a good example of model turned mogul. So again, just championing women of all different backgrounds to be their absolute best. And starting the conversation, there's so many people who've never even heard of what a burkini is Mm -hmm. that because of today will know. So I think we're headed in the right direction and I'm so excited to see what the next five years is gonna be like.
5: So the, you're a really big role model for a lot of young Muslims. How does that feel?
6: Incredible. I have. I feel like I have thousands of little baby sisters, and, <laughs> and you know what? I'm so. Um, they inspire me so much to do my best, to take a leap of faith, to try new things, and they really are my number one motivator. So I'm so excited that they have that I have so many little sisters.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, something I think is so great about this particular swimsuit issue is that it has a lot of trailblazers, as you noted, and icons like Tyra and, and different body types and, yeah. and people from different cultural experiences. Listen, most of us are not fashion models. Alas, <laughs> alas, I don't think it's in my future. I'm gonna be <gasps> on the cover You never of know. About the, the swimsuit issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for people who you know don't have that experience as models in high fashion, can you talk about what it meant to kind of have that kind of photo shoot experience Surrounded by that diversity, like what it feels like on the job.
6: Well, for me, never say never, because I will tell you, three years ago, there was not even three years, less than three years ago, Mm -hmm. I became the first hijab-wearing model. Mm -hmm. So kind of like you, I was like, there's no one who wears a hijab, Mm -hmm. you know? So I never even thought that that was a possibility. And today, look at us, we're Mm -hmm. here. So I would say— What was the question? (laughs) That is possible. That is is possible. That is possible.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And also, can you talk, I mean, you know, Tyra Banks, you know, of course, made history in the 90s being on the cover. And now she's back 13 years later. What was it like when you found out you were going to be in the same issue as her?
6: My stomach, like, literally was like, oh, because it's Tyra (laughs) Banks. That's how, when I found out I was going to be a model, I, I watched religiously. I okay. watched two cycles of America's Next Top Model and I okay. was like, okay, Tyra said smile. Okay. She said smile with your eyes. She said more emotion. She said bend, bend it this way. So in a way, I have uh-huh. her to like think as like my first fashion coach because that's I how I was like prepped for my first ever photo shoot. I love it so much.
5: Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's Ramadan, mm-hmm. a.k.a. not even water season.
0: I'm
5: sorry, girl. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I can't relate. <laughs> Stand
0: in solidarity.
5: So, I wanted to ask you, what is it like to do your job during Ramadan, mm-hmm. and have you ever had to fast during a big fashion show?
6: Actually, yes. Yeah. So, for me, I'm so blessed that people are so respectful, and they accommodate me very well. So, they're super sweet, and even like nail polish, because you know what? You can't pray with nail polish on okay. So, the stylists understand, and they do like the... Take ones, take it off quick. Go mm. run and pray. So for me, it actually has not been difficult at all. It's oh. it's really good, easy, easy peasy. Oh, that's amazing.
5: That's awesome. So one of my favorite traditions is uh, blackout Aid on Twitter. And last yeah. year you participated. Uh-huh. So, so do you have your aid outfit ready?
6: I will say I plan on wearing Halima by Maranisa, my newest uh, turban launch. So that's going to be the head. And depending on which tur- turban I pick, okay. that's going to talk. That's going to define what I, I wear. Like okay.
5: So another thing we really love at BuzzFeed, as you know, is memes. Yes.
6: So so do
5: you have any favorite Ramadan memes?
6: I have—okay, the date jokes are really, really funny because, as you know, during Ramadan, a lot of us Muslims eat— um, dates so all those date, date memes are really really funny I love it
0: I love <laughs> pretty it. good well Halima you're an absolute delight you're glowing I feel like everyone in the studio is, is happier and a more hopeful mood
6: well so. I love BuzzFeed so it's
0: oh. nice to be back Well, oh, we love you we love you um, of course guys you can see Halima in Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue it is out today so get it I love it. it celebrate it. it this is so great and up next Isaac is going to be talking about how Google wants to change online shopping it's a little crazy thank you Halima
1: Thank you! <laughs> Welcome back. Here's a tweet from our own Saeed Jones. Thought things were already rough in digital media? Cool. It's about to get worse. That was a response to a scoop from Fast Company writer Kale Weissman. Google may be about to kill affiliate marketing links. Kale joins me now to talk about this story. Good morning, Kale. Hey, how's it going? going all right, although I won't lie. This has me a little nervous. So I I wanted to ask, how is Google planning to change the way people shop online?
7: So pretty much Google is in a pretty big race with Amazon to get people to use it to buy things. If you're looking for something to buy, you go to Amazon, you type in, I want a blender and that'll come up. But Google wants people to shop with it. And so often if you use Google, you're looking for websites that will recommend things. So if I type in Best blender. I'll get a recommendation, maybe from BuzzFeed, maybe from some other site like The Wirecutter, etc. But now, what they're see, they seem to be doing or experimenting with is instead of linking to those, they just sort of take the content and say this was rated highly by this company, and then let you know that they're highly rated, but check out on the Google search with you know with, with their own specific vendors. And that sounds like a small change, but it's actually a pretty big change specifically for us people who work in media and other people who who uh, try to you know have their entire businesses based on recommending and selling products online.
1: Yeah, and we've seen this a little bit with how Google you can search something now and it used to be you'd kick click through to like read about it and Google kind of grabs some text, but for those yeah. that don't know, what is an affiliate link and how would eliminating them be so da- why would eliminating them be so damaging for the digital media?
7: Yeah, so pretty much affiliate links are one of the rare few ways that
1: media companies like
7: like BuzzFeed, New York Times, New York Mag anywhere that they're making non-digital advertising revenue and I know that sounds really boring but it's also interesting if you look into the nuts and bolts of it but pretty much a lot of a lot of people write about what their the best products are or what they recommend and they include a little link to Amazon or another seller and every time a reader clicks on that link and then buys it the, the recommender, the person who wrote that recommendation gets a little bit of a kickback and that's one way that media companies publishers and other you know other people are lo- online are making some real revenue to, to stay afloat as as you know the headwinds of advertising change And so what makes the, the Google thing much scarier is that people who write this content who are writing these recommendations, these guides that people rely on, the Google is taking that content, but not le- giving them the links that would give them the kickback, if that makes any sense.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, I think is pretty scary. Um, and it would also affect other uh, certain, like, uh, industries as well. Here's a tweet from Maris Kreisman. This cannot be good for book coverage, specifically. So I just like wanted to ask, Like, I, I was a books editor here at BuzzFeed. I used to make recommendations. Then you would have affiliate links. How would this change the way books are covered and how could this affect other industries? I mean like how it will affect it it's anyone's guess but like you you know for a
7: fact that when you write those book recommendations and they include the links that will then give BuzzFeed a little bit of money so that you know to, to keep that engine going instead what would happen is Google would if you typed in best nonfiction new release it would show a series of books and then say, recommended by BuzzFeed, but then let you use Google to check out. So then you wouldn't be getting that money. That would have a huge, huge ramifications for not just books, but any industry. But books is a really interesting one because there are a lot of websites and blogs that, you know, what they do is they review literature and then in the hopes that people will use their links and then make those purchases. So if Google then takes that over, it it will just completely handicap an industry. It's pretty nuts.
1: It is pretty nuts. Vox now reports Amazon wants to pay the New York Times and BuzzFeed to expand so it can reach more shoppers outside the U.S. So, Kale, we're talking about Google a lot. What is Amazon's strategy right now?
7: I mean, Amazon... So pretty much, if you look at it, Amazon has a stronghold on people shopping for things. But in my opinion, their search sucks. Like, if I search, if I search for something on Amazon, it's anyone's guess. I don't know how good it is, I guess I would put it. Google, on the other hand, is really good at search. And that's sort of where they're duking it out, is who's going to be the best at both search and shopping. And what Amazon wants right now is to to be able to populate the best content and then give that affiliate marketing link. So like... A, Places like BuzzFeed, places like The Wirecutter, etc., they already have deals with Amazon where, if they include, you know, their special link, Amazon will give them an you know, affiliate revenue for for making that recommendation. What this new update means is that they're going to be giving m- more money upfront if they do more international recommendations. Which, for the short term, is you know good news for media companies because it means that they're at least getting some money for this kind of content. But it's also indicative that. Amazon really means business with, you know, trying to further to to show that it means business with content and with recommendations and that it wants to control the shopping landscape and it's anyone's guess how Google's going to respond to that. For the time being, it hasn't really been paying writers or or publishers for this kind of content, but maybe that'll shift things? I don't
0: know.
1: But I feel like that's a really big maybe because we're looking at a digital media landscape right now where people are losing their jobs because so much ad revenue has been sucked up by websites like Facebook, by websites like Google. So I wanted to ask you kind of a a two prong question here. Do you think Google cares about digital media revenue? And then also, why should people that don't work in digital media care about any of this?
7: Great. Both questions are great. The first one, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know. I, you know, the, the, the media person in me really hopes Google cares about digital media revenue, but the pragmatist really doesn't. I think Google cares about the end user. And what Google wants is something that is so easy for people to search and say, I want a blender. Let me search best blender. I'll buy it on Google, and then Google will help facilitate that transaction. They want the most seamless, frictionless experience ever, and I I question if that handicaps media companies whether they will really care or whether that will be collateral damage. I don't know. I would love to be proven wrong on that count. I really would be. On the other hand, why other people should care? Well, it's really two pronged. One is that this will really hurt media companies, like. The, the the New York Times bought the wire cutter a few years ago for a lot of money solely so that it would bring in this kind of revenue. And then, if Google completely stunts it, then then that entire revenue stream is gone. BuzzFeed does it, Vox does it, everybody does this kind of thing, and it's one way to sort of keep things relatively sustainable. And so, if you're a news reader who wants your favorite publications to be around, this could significant this could and will significantly hurt them. But on a on a bigger note this is another way that google is further exerting its power i we you know we've talked over the last few years about facebook and how you know it gathers every user's data and is trying to you know control people in in very very questionable ways google and amazon are doing very similar things just from different trajectories and this is a really great example of it where google just wants everyone to use google.com to do all of their searches to do all of their purchases and this is it trying to do more of
1: a power grab. And that's very scary, in my opinion. Yeah, so much for do no evil. Well, Kale, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you, too. Up next, we're talking to author G. Willow Wilson. Stick around.
8: Welcome back. I'm Ariana Rebellini, BuzzFeed Books editor. Here's a tweet from Zachary just finished G. Willow Wilson's book, The Bird King. What a beautiful, lush, layered story full of living characters marked by their depth. Absolutely majestic work. Cannot recommend it highly enough. G. Willow Wilson joins me now. Hi, Willow.
9: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank
8: you so much for calling in and joining us. Um, Your book, The Bird King, is the Buzzfeed book club may pick and members are so excited about it. Um, Can you tell us about it?
9: So The Bird King is a historical fantasy set in 15th century Spain. It's about two friends, Fatima and Hassan, who are living in the beautiful palace of the Alhambra in Granada, Spain which at that point is the very last city of the once great empire of Al-Andalus uh, in what we now call Spain. And everybody at this point knows that it's kind of the end. The Inquisition is coming. It's only a matter of time before the Sultan will be forced to accept terms of surrender from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And so Fatima and Hassan are kind of faced with a choice. Do they stay or do they make a run for it? And the book follows their journey as they kind of try to find their way to freedom, to a place where they will be uh, kind of accepted for who they are and where they can protect one another. And uh, they made a cast of very colorful characters, both real and imaginary, along the way.
8: Now, so you wrote a little essay for us about how the book was made, and you mentioned how you have these two halves of yourself, kind of Islam and the West, and how they are in constant conflict. What was it like returning to a time and writing about when that divide might not have been as harsh?
9: You know, in some ways it was really cathartic to write a book set during this time period where the boundary between what we think of today as quote-unquote Islam and quote-unquote the West was quite fluid. And in fact, there was a lot of cultural exchange, uh, one of the sort of greatest golden ages of Islamic thought and art and philosophy occurred uh, in Muslim Spain in in sort of this golden age of Al-Andalus and so to go back to this time period Where those choices were not quite as clear where those conflicts did not quite exist yet. They were starting to exist They didn't quite exist um, It was really really fascinating to me and to sort of Live at least in you know in my mind in, in kind of this uh, world, especially when I was in the research phase Learning about the ways in which European culture and Muslim culture kind of influenced each other during this time period, uh, it, it was fascinating. Especially because I think even for those of us who are interested in history, this is not a time period that gets talked about a lot. And uh, so it, it was just absolutely fascinating. And um, it, you know, it's it's something that I'm glad I had the opportunity to do.
8: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to read. And you've also written many comics, graphic novels, including the Ms. Marvel comic um, about a Muslim teenager, Kamala Khan. So what was mm-hmm. it like writing the first uh, you know, Muslim character to headline a Marvel comic book? It
9: was quite an experience. You know, when Sana Amanat, the editor and co-creator, first called me up and said, we want to do this project and we'd love it if you would come on board and write it, I had to kind of do a double take and say, are, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's going to be so controversial. We're going to have targets painted on our backs. Um, but you know, when a, a company like Marvel comes to you with an opportunity like this, how can you possibly say no? And, you know, when when Sana and I started out with this book, I think both of our expectations for it were quite modest. We thought if we could get to one year, 12 issues, that that would be really something, you know, that would be two trade paperbacks. And we'd say, well, we gave it our best shot. And then we would all go back to doing what we had been doing before. Um, So when the book absolutely took off and was so embraced by fans and there were cosplayers after the very first issue, uh, and the first trade paperback was on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic books. It was just an absolute phenomenon. It, w- it was like being there, uh, when lightning strikes the bottle, it's, it's that lightning in a bottle moment and, uh, you know, the right character, the right team, the right fan base, the right time, the right place. And that so rarely happens that it was just will always remain one of the coolest things that I've ever done and been a part of.
8: It's so wonderful. Um, What is one difference between writing comics and novels that you didn't maybe expect?
9: You know, I've always thought that writing comics requires a lot more technical skill than I think most people realize. We're used to thinking of comics as being kind of a disposable medium. Uh, You know, you get one issue every month, most of the time they end up probably shoved behind your toilet or you know in your recycle bin or there's this sense that they kind of capture the zeitgeist and uh you know that they're magazines and so we kind of treat them like magazines. But in fact it requires a very particular skill set to write for comics that uh I I really think in many ways is more difficult than writing prose because we process as human beings more than one image at a time. So when you're laying out a page of a comic, you have to really think about how many panels does it take me to describe this action? How much is the reader's mind gonna fill in? Uh, you know, If I want to set up a, a cliffhanger, I have to make sure that it's on a page turn because if it's on the facing page, that ruins the suspense right off the bat. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration that make uh, writing for comic books particularly challenging. And when I go back to writing prose, like for *The Bird King*, it's really, in a lot of ways, kind of uh, like you know, relaxing. Because number one, the audience can see 100% of what I do. When I read a comic book script, the audience maybe sees only 20% of what I've actually written. The other 80% is just kind of a love letter to the artist. But when I'm writing a um, a work of prose, the reader is seeing 100% of those words, and uh, I can have digressions, I can have subplots. There's no hard stop on how long it should be. And so there's, you know, it's it's nice to kind of have that freedom going back to prose. I love them both. I don't think I could just stick with one or the other.
8: Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Willow. It was great talking to you. Um, the Bird King is available now everywhere books are sold and check out buzzfeedbookclub.com to read along with the Buzzfeed Book Club this month. Don't go away. Up next, Isaac and Saeed are responding to your tweets.
1: Welcome back. Princess Leia, you tweeted, I'm so glad Halima Aiden has been treated well by the industry and her religious beliefs have been respected while she works. Legend. Icon, she's so great. Um, before we did this show, something I just never understood
0: is when you would see people doing, you know, TV or, or film, and they would talk about like the energy of another person. Mm. I was like, Whatever, like this sounds. Like, but doing it, I think you will agree, you it, it is something you feel, and we feel this with Ener- our friends. Like, energy's goodbye. real, and she just has that glow, and you're just like, oh my god, you know, just immediate. Before she said a word, you can feel her warmth and her enthusiasm. So it's wonderful to see that that's being returned to her, you know, in her experience as a
1: model. Absolutely. I, the word that came to my mind was shine. Yes. There was just so much yeah. shine there. So she it was also so had happy.
0: fabulous pants. I don't know if you could see them. We were trying to figure out ways she could like put her feet up. Anyway, that's, that up is
1: feet one feet. thing about this setup that's really tough. You know, sometimes you lose the shoes and the pants. Yeah, sometimes we're naked back here. You know? That's not true.
0: <laughs> okay, we wanted to know uh, what you think the next product you want to see get toughened up. I said prostate exam. <laughs> but I had to murder that prostate. <laughs> Toughen up. Be some skulls, put some skulls, skulls on the gloves. Spikes. Uh, Rachel Hey Girlfield <laughs> tweeted, what if we uh, t- uh, toughened up the marketing on tampons? Will insecure men buy them for their girlfriends? Wow. A good idea. Oh Yeah, what? Like, literally, what could be more metal than, yeah. than a woman's period? That 5,000%. is tough as fuck. thousand I'd be tough. like, you damn right I'm buying these it tampons. Is, it is badass. She's a bad motherfucker. Absolutely. Can't believe it's
1: happening again. I like your idea there, too, though, that it's I also it. the guys that are like, oh, no. Put it all what, in what, black what, 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 and stuff. Supposed, yeah, it's, it's like. It's ridiculous. It's so. Oh, my God. ah uh, Man, oh, it's anyways. It's gay marketing. Yeah, all right. Anyway, if you haven't heard yet, though. This is really big news, and we're so excited. BuzzFeed News AM to DM tapped Alex Berg and Zach Stafford as new hosts. That announcement Yay. went out yesterday. Clap it up, clap it up. Booyah, booyah, booyaka, 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 booyaka. This, Very exciting. This is really big for me and Saeed because, listen, we love this show. We really, really care about it, and part of, like, being able to take this next step in our careers was knowing who would be coming in to host. And these two people are so wonderful. They're They're DNA. Alex helped launch this show. Zach definitely speaks to the show's ideals. Mm -hmm. These two people are are living embodiments of what this show is all about. Yeah, for the first year of the show, um, Alex was, you know, the line producer, which
0: means she was the person in our ear now. Now it's our wonderful uh, line producer, uh, Emily. Uh, But, you know, she's very much at the heart of this. And, of course, Zach has been on the show many times and has been doing wonderful work at, at Grinder and Into and now The Advocate and so I'm excited to welcome them back to the family. Yeah.
1: In different ways. It's going to stay awesome. It's going to stay gay as hell. It's going to be awesome. It's true. Right in time for Pride Month.
0: I love it. <laughs> all right, well, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Great conversations. Sari Yassine, Ariana Rebellini, Kate Nasera, Brian Collister, Scott Bixby, Kale Wasteman, NG Willow Wilson,
1: and Halima Aiden. Thank you all for joining us. What a wonderful show. We will be back here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day Murder those prostates